What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 54 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Hunter of Hidden Forest Farms, based out of Maine. We talk about their homestead, their single source lifestyle, and how they got there. He tells us about how they've developed the property over the last seven years, some of their cultivation trials, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. A shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with the best ceiling carb caps in the game. You can grab them at Zach Brown Glass on Instagram or on his website, ZachBrownGlass.com. Also, a big thank you to every person that makes up our community on Patreon. Without their continued support, we would not be able to continue bringing you episodes. So thanks to each and every one of you again. If you would ever like to support the podcast, grab the t-shirt that the guests received, listen to additional interviews and more, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. That's the Hashish I-N-N on our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or our website, thehashishin.com. Also a shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our partners at Raws and Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find the best deal in hash, Rosin Evolution's trusty and affordable full mesh wash bags, as well as their tried and true rosin bags, trusted by hash makers all over the country, from small batch to commercial. So if you wash hash or you press rosin, Rosin Evolution has got you covered with unmatched products and customer service. They're your one-stop shop for anything rosin. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro, who you can visit on their website, toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at Toro underscore glass. They've been pioneering functional glass art since the early 2000s. They stay at the forefront of innovation where their passion for cannabis and its resin has inspired them to create new ways for us all to consume it while maintaining their extremely high standards of quality. So whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can visit on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or their website, hashheadoutfitters.com where they focus on small batch, high grade clothing for hash lovers that gets you feeling extra cozy with that dab. They're a perfect blend of quality and comfort. You can feel good that the 100% cotton is sourced responsibly and you can look great in the variety of colorways that they've been dropping. So if you're like me and you like to feel comfortable while you're seshing, check out our new friends who cater to hash lovers lifestyles, Hashhead Outfitters again on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or on their website, hashheadoutfitters.com. 
Again, a shout out to Zach Bronglass for hooking up our guest with my favorite carb cap in the game. Check out his V2 series and beyond at ZachBrownGlass.com or on Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. I appreciate you listening and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 54 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I am stoked to be here with Hunter of Hidden Forest Farms based out of Maine. You can follow them on Instagram at Hidden Forest underscore Farms. What's up, dude? How are you? What up, man? Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, dude. I appreciate you taking the time to talk today. I also appreciate you having me out at your farm a few weekends ago for the Culture Cup. You know, why don't we start there? Can you tell us a little bit about what your intention was when creating the Culture Cup? Culture Cup was just kind of a gathering of homies. You know, there wasn't anything uh, crazy organized with any end goal at first. It was just us kind of getting together what we thought was the better hash makers in the state of Maine and just trying to keep uh, everyone on the same page and have a fun gathering that's competitive where we can push hash forward. So just like a private little mini ego clash, basically, is where it all started and blossomed from that point to just trying to offer a little bit more slowly as we had them. But really just the simple stuff that happens you know, regularly, but just adding the competition element to it. So tell us a little bit more about some of the first renditions of the event. You mentioned it was smaller and it was mostly people from Maine. Obviously, the event that I attended uh, was a little bigger. And at the same time, it included people from different states competing as well. So tell us about how you've seen that like change from those smaller versions to this one. First one was just, like I said, a private gathering. We had it at this barn that is a renovated barn. They throw weddings and different kinds of stuff there. And uh, we had like a potluck, blindly judged all the jars, just like kind of, you know, ego clash, like I was saying. And then we kept it like off the internet, just kind of like, don't tell anyone you're invited because we didn't want any public eye on it, really. It just was kind of for us and just to keep it small and easy. And then we decided to try to slowly open it up to the public, which was where we decided to merge with the, or collaborate with the farm to patient event, which was really fun. So yeah, we added the marketplace and we added the live music element with Yardcore. So it was a lot. Uh, it was a big change. It was, it went from, you know, just two or three simple gatherings to like full on event, which was complicated, but we had a lot of fun and uh, hope to have it again. Yeah, that's a funny thing that we were connecting on on that trip is, you know, you guys organize this event and whether you want to or not, when you're doing these things, you do become an organizer. And on our end as well, we've now done a few events and it's an interesting task. And it's definitely like outside of anything necessarily like cannabis related. And you guys are so connected to the farm that I'm sure it's an extra challenge to do that. Yeah, it was definitely uh, a lot to bite off. But looking back on it, even considering some of the stressful things like having to change the venue and just really coordinating with a whole lot of people at one time, it was really fun and totally you know worth it for us. Even though sets, there was a couple nights there where I was like, I don't know how many of these I could throw realistically, but yeah, it was, it was honestly super fun. And the day of was very smooth and it was definitely worth it. Uh, I think we do some things differently, but that's kind of how things get better. And 
like you mentioned, I'm not a uh, event organizer. Better off on the farm for sure. But we learned a lot, and you know, we had to deal with music too, which was wild. And that was honestly the biggest surprise. I'm used to getting all of the people, you know, in the hash competition to actually answer and commit and like all of that. I'm slowly getting better at, but we had no idea what we were getting into with the hospitality rider, the tech, the tech rider, having to, you know, the whole thing for the band there. So we learned a lot and had a lot of fun. So definitely worth it. Cool. Yeah, I agree. It went smooth that day. It was a cool event. It all like kind of worked itself out. I know there were some last minute changes, but like you said, you know, it, it all ended up going pretty smooth. So kudos to you guys for doing that. One thing that I wanted to bring up, and we've talked about this, I think, in some of the other episodes, whether it was with Tucker or from Helios, is that, you know, you don't think of Maine as being a really big state, but it actually is. And I find it interesting that you did the Culture Cup in part, even at the beginning, as a way to start connecting people in the state from all over. You know, some are way north, some are way south, some are somewhere in the middle, some are coastal. So it's an interesting thing to think about Maine being so diverse in its like microclimates. And I know you guys have your own thing going on. So what do you see from like these different regions through the resin? Yeah, kind of like just to touch on what you were saying about Maine being like a big physical state where it's like a large state, but having a super low amount of people considerably to like, you know, Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or New York and, you know, a lot of these East Coast states is, is, uh, everyone is pretty isolated. Me being one of those people, I came here for that. So that's kind of the theme, you know, people want their own little slice and want to do their own thing and not be bothered, uh, which is a beautiful thing about Maine. But there's definitely a good community, but I felt amongst hash, there is a void to be filled. It's very competitive on the East Coast, and that's just kind of the vibe here anyway, which is what I, I love about the East Coast, honestly, is it's fast-paced. It's healthy competition if you can use it to motivate yourself, but overall, it needed to be lightened up a little bit, in my opinion, and I think having a competition where you can kind of break bread, eat food, where everyone brings food, and there's like a potluck vibe there's music uh it gives the opportunity to push hash forward where it's extremely competitive and there's like people are super interested to see where they fall but it's really fun and everyone can kind of like after going to a couple of them just be stoked to be there because a lot of the results to these style blind tests are are like fortune based you know it's like who's going to bring what you don't know what, you know, you have no idea what other people are bringing. You don't know what the theme is of this specific event. And like they change up, like it's tough. So a lot of it is just being part of, you know, the team and having the overall experience, you know, I think so. I think we're like starting to do that and trying to get more and more people together. But as you know, with cups, it's also a little bit divisive. And so like, we're just trying to minimize that by the qualifiers and like dropping the invitational completely just us selecting because we want people we don't know to be able to get in there obviously so we're just slowly developing it but i think uh it's been nice to keep it like an open conversation amongst the competitors where we're like hey do you guys like we took strength out of the scorecard 
You know what I mean? We talk to everyone, you know, we want to keep changing things so that everyone feels like it's becoming more and more accurate to them or fair to them or whatever they feel. But uh, to shift over to the microclimate thing, us being in mid-coast Maine, we get a lot of sun, but we get a lot of fog. So a lot of fog come through and sit. So it's super humid for long periods of time, but it's also warmer than most places. And we have a little bit of a longer season than most regions here in Maine. So pros and cons to kind of everywhere. Like the contrast would probably be like in Western Maine in like the mountain region where it's just going to get a lot colder. It's going to be a way shorter season window for you. So timings are all different and stuff. Just kind of like Cali and like a lot of other bigger states, there's just a big difference from the coasts to, you know, the mountains. So recently being in Cali, seeing the difference between McKinleyville and like Redding, I was like, wow. You know, it was like 62 degrees and like super wet all the time. And then we drove it in inland like an hour and a half or something like that. And it was like 107 degrees, like 0% humidity, it felt like. So yeah, similar, similar styles, you know, a lot of different varying regions. And depending on what your goals are, you definitely want to select wisely. And going back to not knowing what people are going to bring to the table to these events, since everybody is kind of scattered out, like you're saying, what kind of genetics have you seen come through? And then the second part of that question is, are a lot of these farms doing outdoor resin like you guys are? Strains have been kind of, you know, they go in like waves, like the first one. I believe Sour DBX4 was like second or first or something like that. Honey Bee came in and got like second or something like that. So similar trends, you know, you see Honey Bee do well. Skittles, like we have the ZQ cut in Maine, a lot of people have at this point. And uh, a couple Rainbow Belts cuts that a lot of people have. So kind of see those similar trends that you see in every cup. Um, but I do think overall we bring a little bit more gas and less fruit, like a lot of candy gas versus candy fruit. From what I've gathered from some of the out-of-state people from this last one is that they felt that too. <laughs> so I'd say, you know, Z and gas have been basically where Maine, I think, kind of is trending towards still. But we'll see, man. People are getting sick of Skittles, I think, a little bit more in the competition realm. but. You know, I hear people be like, oh, I'm sick, of, I'm sick of Z, I'm sick of Z. And then you see it just win. So it's like blindly people still like it, I guess. So we'll see how things change. I'm sure it'll shift. Yeah, you're right. Someone out of Michigan was telling me at the competition that they've been to other competitions and been part of other events. They're like, this is a more varied competition in the sense that there was, uh, there was more of a mix of profiles where there were a lot of, I think, kind of Z-ish based entries, but there was also a lot of, like you said, quote unquote, gas ones, and they were all over the place. So I think that, you know, bringing in the people from out of town and then mixing them with some of the people that you guys got through your qualifiers was interesting. And it was interesting to see that blend of resin and the blend of profiles and, you know, what people were bringing to the table. But Again, back to my question, is a lot of that sun growing or is some of or most of that indoor in Maine? From the results of the last cup, sun grown didn't do great. 
overall, you know, I think Sungrown has the potential to be really, really, really good. And I think in California and some other grow regions with a little better season, it's a little bit more available, like good outdoor is a little more available in other states than, than here in Maine because of like similar to the region I'm in, a lot of other people have mold, mildew, there's a lot of bugs. <clears throat> it's not something that you, most people do like all the time. So there's also not a lot of people practicing it, but I know that you can have specific genetics. If you're hunting from seed vigorously, you'll find them really fast. That will do really, really well here. And, and uh, you just need to collect a lot of data and go from seed in like a pretty large way with like a specific direction instead of just doing like two packs of like 17 different strains. You kind of need to like figure out a direction. So like for us, we ran a bunch of clones our first season because you know, we hardly had anything together for the season anyway. We almost weren't even able to make it happen, but we got 100-gallon pots basically filled at the last second and clones from my homie. And from that point, we're able to be like, wow, like these don't do well at all. These do good and kind of break down their genes and the parents and see like, okay, like this stuff might be able to do well. And then through the years, going from seed vigorously and bringing in a whole lot of different clones and just trying them all, you realize weird things that you, that wouldn't make, make sense. Like, you know, cookies stuff does really good in me. And it's interesting, the butt structure, the density, the resin, the drier resin, it kind of like pushes water off of it and it doesn't sponge up. And some of like the like outdoor bread for mold resistant stuff from California and Oregon that I've grown here molds immediately it's like a giant sponge so i was like wow i got like a forum cut cookies clone and it like no no blemish on it just grew perfect and then i've grown like royal kush magnum opus crosses and like a bunch of stuff from like the whole mandelbrot line and watch a lot of it mold in maine and like that stuff doesn't mold in other regions and that's what it's famous for and so yeah it's cool you just have to like take your losses and learn and since we collect a lot of data and grow a lot of different strains and it took us about three years but we're able to dial in like a really nice menu that i think stands up to indoor products but it's harder to get to that point it takes years and like that's why i think there's not that many people doing it here and i think the greenhouses are making more of a push now in maine which is good because it's the best of both worlds in my opinion. So I think sun grown's becoming more and more popular, but I do think the outdoor season in certain regions in Maine isn't even doable. So I, you, you see a lot of negative connotation around it in general because of the average product you see isn't always good, but we're working, you know, we're always working to change that. Honestly, that's kind of one of our goals and what we try to do. So. And those clones that you guys took in on that first year, were those coming from somebody who primarily was growing indoor? Yeah. Yeah. Like we were screwed. Like we got clones from some guy and had no idea what we were really doing at the time. And they were just like horrible. They like weren't really growing well. They had PM. It's like just not a good way to start the season. And my homie was like, you can't do that, dude. <laughs> was like, I'll go find some clones for you. You should throw those out. And um, hooked us up with a bunch of clones and, a lot of epic strains, honestly, that we should have probably kept, but we, you know, we weren't even, you know, 
skilled enough to know how to clone yet at this time. We just were like, let's grow weed versus not growing weed and just try and made like a big coots mix, which is like a famous, you know, water only soil mix and basically followed that like to a T and then filled up a bunch of hundred gallon pots on pallets. You know what I mean? So very different style to how we grow now. We just kept responding to the different genetics and what they do and really just being like, you know, we can't grow these here and just bringing in new stuff. So a lot of shuffling. Yeah. And so you talked about it taking you about three years to build the current menu going back to the beginning of when you guys got there. How long has it been? Uh, This is our seventh season here. So our sixth season in the Hugels where the hoops are. And um, it's been a really good journey we have a lot going on because it's like a farmstead so we're doing we're trying we're getting into raising different kinds of livestock and expanding the garden my girlfriend vic has been doing a great job with ushering in honey honey bees and that whole project she also kind of like heads well not kind of definitely heads the garden and does most of that so all those pretty flowers and everything people see on the instagram that i get to walk walk through a lot of that is Vic and we have a really good team like me Matt and our two girlfriends are all licensed caregivers here and we do all the work with one of our good homies Aiden Ross Aiden on Instagram and we got a good family structure where we work together to do most things and I think that's why we excel because we have a good team and we have a but we've been able to work together very very well and i think a lot of maine is not working in in teams right now and i think that's why with our style of growing we've been able to excel a little faster but i also think like another huge reason is like i said like someone tries an outdoor grow it doesn't necessarily fare well and it just could not be worth their time versus like if they already have an indoor grow or whatever it's kind of like tough to hop into putting in the time and effort it takes to develop. Would you say overall you feel then like Maine is an indoor state in regards to growing? Because, you know, going back to yes. the culture cup and going back to you wanting to bring people together, you've also mentioned to me uh, multiple times that part of your goal is to highlight people that have been doing this work for a long time. And, you know, again, this is not the first place that I think of when it comes to cannabis is Maine, but I think it's been uh, something that's been prominent in that area for a long time. And there are people that have been doing this craft for a long time. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. It's an indoor state, 100%. It makes sense to come up here and set up an indoor grow in a lot of ways with the weather. But it all just depends on the scenario and the situation for everyone. Like for us, we went with get buying land as like with our broader goal of regenerating land and being in real estate and purchasing land and turning it into farms and either renting or farming it. That was the best move for us. So we don't have like a landlord that can just keep raising rent or make it or not fix anything and have it kind of go to crap and you have to rip all your stuff out and take a loss on all the electric and like a whole lot of stuff. We decided we'd like, I've seen that un- unfold many a time. So 
we decided that the most important thing was to own the land, which is a really, in my opinion, one of the best moves we made. At the same time, it was very risky as far as the cultivation and success of it. We did really well. We, you know, we did dried flour for three years successfully. And I think that's why we got good at growing because that's hard, you know, to have stuff not mold and dry it and trim it and have good looking stuff that people want to pay for. Like, I think that's why we got good at growing quick was just growing a bunch of different strains and doing dry flower on the coast of Maine. It's just like a tricky thing to do. So we learned a lot with that. But if you have a hundred thousand bucks to put into something or a partner or multiple partners, like, you know, it probably makes most sense to start an indoor or a greenhouse grow at Maine. So it's definitely predominantly indoor, kind of like Colorado, honestly, kind of has that vibe. Same as Michigan, you know, there's, there's a few dudes out there killing it with the sun grown stuff, but it's predominantly an indoor. And personally, uh, with like the amount of like people that have been here doing it for a while, you know, Mega Raw Melts is probably one of the, the most, like has the most like longevity of a successful brand. He kind of like set the bar for solventless hash brands here. But there's been people in Maine, you know, brandless doing doing this forever. And that is one of our goals is to get those kind of people out there that don't have much brand recognition, whether they're old school or they're new school and unknown. And that's why um, like the qualifier for us was a way to do that with it being an open thing where we don't necessarily invite people. I definitely reached out to a lot of people and said, hey, if you want to, you can. But it was kind of first come, first serve. And a good example was Divine Gardens, who ended up winning the Culture Cup for Rosin. I had no idea who those cats were at all. And I wouldn't have invited them because of that reason. So it was cool for them to come to the qualifier and get in the top five and then make their way in and then win with the same entry. And I think like I want to have two qualifiers at this point where we can space it out and select five or so people from each one, even though they also are tough. You know, it's really hard just in general to get, to get the list together with having people not be pissed. But I would say that's probably the, the fairest way is to do it all via qualifying and open, open invite too. So. Yeah, it's hard to say, man, you know, uh, you can try things out. And like you said earlier, you can basically just try to improve upon and, you know, tweak and change these things and see, see how it goes. But it sounds like a good idea to the, you know, the, the bigger the pool is basically of people, uh, and and the wider the range and being able to have as many people come out and then kind of going through the process seems like a good way. Remind us what the winning strain was at the Culture Cup from Divine Gardens. It was Moon Boots. It was incredible smelling, looking, very gassy. It was like a cre- like creamy gas, kind of like the flavor was, I would say, Moonbow dominant. And the overall just look of the hash was insane. It was uh, one of my favorites. It was my number one from the qualifier, which was cool to see. I, I think he ended up, I think he got third at the qualifier, but 
that also just goes to show like if you run back the same competition it could be very different like a lot of people get super caught up where 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 they finish and it's more so just about being part of it and knowing that if you changed your entry or even kept the same and they ran it back it could be very very different and i think you know the thing is the best strategy is to just to try to stand out if you can you see that with consistencies be, you know kind of standing out big time and like and trying to enter a flavor that no one else is going to enter is definitely like the best way to go about it yeah and then again that in itself is kind of difficult when especially if you're coming in from some other place you don't know what other people could bring and so it becomes an interesting mix uh, and i thought that was a cool thing that happened there but going back to the garden and you guys starting that up you know you went from the hundred gallon pots you said the second year was the Hugo bits and in person you told me something that keeps making me laugh internally is like you're like we learned to do you know the the regenerative type style thing because we were broke not because <laughs> we're you know necessarily trying yeah. to do that so talk to us a little bit about that talk to us about you know some of the hard times that you guys went through you said you got through you got through three cycles of dry flower and you know I'm sure you face a lot of challenges getting to this seventh year so tell us a little bit about those yeah, we definitely just kind of were winging it. So there's some funny, some funny stories. But, but yeah, our first season, we got the land and that always takes longer, you know, closing on it. And then we couldn't even drive a car or a truck down the driveway. We had to fix the driveway in a few different areas. And then we were finally able to get down in there and kind of had to like bushwhack some like low brush areas out. That's where we ended up just being like, well, we need to make a soil and get these plants into 100 gallon pots. And, you know, we'll go from there and learn. And, you know, straight up feel just like has net like it was like an old log property that was just left there for the past 17 years. So there was ticks everywhere. There was just invasive species everywhere. It was pretty gnarly. You know, our, our first grow just like immediately got covered in caterpillars and i was like so shook like what is going on and we uh literally all just went out and picked them all off every day by hand like all day that's all we did and we only watered the plants so it was very very simple there was nothing sprayed nothing fed it was just the coots mix and then uh we tried to replant into that and had like a really rough time. And then that's when we kind of learned like the soil food web, I guess is kind of, and that kind of realm is where we started, where we started learning to make the like Elaine Ingham style composts and all that, which was really fun, but didn't really get us that far for like our problem which was no food left in there was no nutrition in the soil we're planting into so that's kind of like how is like how is this supposed to work and then i was like oh okay the soil food web and then okay animal bedding and using animals to graze okay that's how we're going to get fertility in an organic way that we're helping the land okay got it and then slowly realizing what I needed to do to get nutrients back into the soil, which was like cover cropping and mulching and all the different no-till style farming techniques. So then we got into Korean natural farming, 
which we did that like strict K and F for like a whole season. And then we did like some stuff from that point forward. That's how we learned how to feed plants, you know, was essentially through Korean natural farming where we were able to harvest plants around the farm, ferment them, you know, brew them, etc. We made all different types of plant foods out of plants. So that was a really cool uh, learning thing for us where we were like, okay, this is low, low cost farming, you know, and we're able to provide the nutrient demand for a very high feeding plant like cannabis without spending a lot of money. And that's like kind of the evolution of it all from that point forward. So yeah, we went from wing it with hundred gal pots to digging Hugel trenches and running a cover crop across the whole entire like zone that we're growing in and kind of taking care of like a whole multiple zones on the property instead of just like growing weed not in the native system. And we've just learned from there, realistically. Uh, We don't do like we're not strict Korean natural farming. We're not strict soil food web. Like I've been focusing and the farm in general has been more focusing on just plant nutrition and chemistry at this point with soils and trying to just improve our natural soil system and learn more about native species that are out compete or species that are out competing the native species. That's what we're like currently focusing on. So not even like the grow areas, but like the areas around them at this point and working on trying to get those species out or under control so that we can have more native grasses and, and, and native species come in to host more beneficial insects and also just like healthy wildlife. So it's a whole process and um, it's always evolving and, you know, we're always changing. So it's very fun for us and it's, it it's, keeps us busy here on the farm and happy. So we're grateful to have the property and I'm very pumped that we decided to go this route because it just kind of gets better and better as we go. And how have you seen the response in the plants of this kind of evolution of your own understanding as to how to cultivate them or provide them an area where they can thrive more so? Uh, Just ease for having a good plant, you know, response that's just improved uh, drastically. We had like rough areas within the hugels that were like holding water or were on like rocky areas, like ledge and stuff. And we kind of, had to work through those by either like adding organic matter and biomass on top of the soils so we can build up and have more soil volume besides like a big piece of you know ledge right underneath the plant and so you know we've learned a lot about how we would probably have oriented our field that we are in now and just like slowly through the cover cropping it went from like clay and rocks to having a nice layer of humus on the top of it, just from the cover crops going to seed and getting chopped and just decomposing on top of that. We add a lot of wood chips out, which really do a lot for creating humus. And uh, yeah, just through, you know, putting out straw and compost and wood chips and cover cropping, it's really just kind of layering stuff similar to like a prairie where the wild kind of prairies would be able to, you know, 
thrive because they go to fruition and then they decompose and they builds up this humus layer. So we didn't have any of that. And we had like, no, there's like close to zero organic matter in the soil. And and, um, so we wanted to build up that on top. So once we were able to get that layer formed, it just holds so much water. There's no more erosion and the capacity to soak up water and use it and move it around to the field is definitely pretty obvious now. So it's it's great. Like with all this rain we've been having in Maine, people are having a hell of a time and we are up on this plateau that can hold water, but it also drains water. So we just have we haven't had any sitting water or any issues like like that and i think that can be attributed to the farming style that we're using which is the no-till approach for the most part and just adding on top of it's really simple honestly it's it's like the no-till process is essentially just mulching a lot growing cover crops and mulching really is the key yeah and that seems to be more like of a time-based thing you'd have to be able to do that over time to get to a point to where you're at now. Yeah, it takes time for sure. And winter is key to living soils and native soil systems as well. And that's why I think it's tough to mimic that with an indoor. I think people have trouble. There's like a lot of uh, like, you get to these areas, you're like, well, I, I, I'm already kind of going against nature with this. So like, where do I draw the line? You know, where do I want to stop with just optimizing the grow, not based off of how nature works, but based off of how your grow room works. And that's why we're in automation with ag salts because it, you know, it provides the nutrients. The nutrients are cheap. You can automate it very, very easy. They never stop. There was no line where they're like, I'm going to draw the line here. And I don't blame them. Honestly, there's a lot of arguments, you know, with indoor I know for a fact running cover crops with indoor is very tricky and without like turning things off for a cycle and having actual rest periods and trying to mimic some sort of winter, you're not going to get the same exact effect from running like a no-till system. But that being said, you can definitely have a no-till system popping off in, you know, indoor beds. A lot of people do it all the time, but I think it's just a lot harder. So You know, for me, I don't even produce indoor because I just feel like uh, I can I can make enough products with my season that I have for the year. So that's just kind of how we see it. But I think you know, as far as quality of products, it's hard to argue with indoor. You know, there's there's just like a it's a super clean, high quality product. And outdoor can be of that quality and sometimes maybe different enough to be better in certain cases. But I do think I'm always I'm comparing my end products to the indoor versions grown by my friends, if it's the same clone or or other people that I don't know even. And I'm always kind of trying to strive to be as good as the indoor because for me it didn't start out as good as indoor so that's just i have a lot of respect for indoor growers even though i don't utilize that method and i think like there's a lot of like organics versus synthetic you know i personally think 
if you are confident enough in growing and passionate enough about the plant to have clean runs round after round, you are just a beast that it's, it's hard, you know, to have clean, consistent indoor, like indoor is very, very hard. I don't care what anyone says. Some people try to simplify it, but you're creating your environment. You're, you're playing God. It's extremely hard to me. And I think people that can do that are more skilled than probably me in a lot of ways um, that I try to learn from. And um, in Maine, like most of the OG growers are like indoor guys that are just like super, super knowledgeable and have been growing for so much longer than me, you know? And I try to learn a lot from the indoor growers around here and compare my products to them because I know that's going to be my critics at the end of the day. Have a lot of those growers now moved into solventless or at least in part? Um, yeah, some of them are. Some of them are having harder times than others because of the genetic issue with solventless. And I don't think, uh, I think it's like not quite understood until you get 1% or you get like green hash or something from a strain that you thought is really good. I think like that's, it's a tough, it's a L you're taking big L's. I've, I've taken them for sure. Like I washed full trenches thinking something was going to wash and not been smart enough to do like a test wash and lost like, you know, a 12th of my grow in one full swoop. So I've been there and it sucks to have strains that you've collected for like 20 years and then have none of them really actually like necessarily make world-class hash and then be like, well, fuck, you know, I need to kind of go back to the drawing board. And the reality is you're starting at square one. You're not pulling at the same times. You're not growing the same. You're not selecting phenos the same way. You know, a lot of like characteristics that you'd be looking for, for a flower guy, you know, that you see and stuff that I grow, people are like, oh my God, like I would never grow that. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's, you know, six and a half percent because of how much surface area and how much resin is on it. And like they're growing plants that are batted all the way up and like they're and it's like sours and OGs and like all this super dank flower. And to have it not translate, I think is like a little bit of a bummer to people. And the new like hash is kind of the new age rosin stuff is kind of a younger crowd overall compared to some of the flower guys so i feel like they're like kind of like a sick bunch of like fruit z handy stuff and they're more gas oriented and i think there's like a learning curve there and i think some people lucked out and like were able to just like hit a clone bank or, and just like get a bunch of washers and be have the intuition to just like switch up their style knowing that these strains wash really well and yeah, you know, it's it's just a transition that I feel like people think is easy and I don't think it is because I've done it myself. So it's always evolving. And I think some of the flower guys aren't going to do hash. You know what I mean? I feel like they don't think it's as... I, I don't think they necessarily do as well, to be honest. Financially and with sales, and it's like tough if you've been selling flour forever to then have like, you know, a pound of hash and like all of your people are like, I, I'll take a gram or something, you know what I mean? And then have all this <laughs> hash to sell. So going back to using some of the indoor to compare your resin, whether it's like cleanliness or whatever else that you're comparing to it, do you find that looking at it at the resin level 
kind of provides a different perspective of it. Like this is indoor, this is outdoor, but you're at that point, you're literally just looking at the resin. Yeah, I think I personally try to like draw, I, like as a judge or like someone as more so less than that as a consumer, I guess more so, I don't care about the cultivation method as much as I do the quality of the product up to like as far as my standards go if i think it's a high quality product i'll ask them what the style of cultivation was because i do like to like not have my bias involved in my decision making before trying something so i don't know maybe that helps i think like i think a lot of indoor hash is more developed than a lot of outdoor hash in maine as far as flavor and what it has to offer because it can finish its full photo period and you can mature it to whatever point you want versus outdoor. If it can't mature enough, it's not going to taste as good. It's not going to be as developed. And I think that's the main thing you see in is, is like that it's things that don't like have the same flavor are this are the, as strong of a flavor probably aren't finished and that's usually probably because the health of the plant started to dwindle due to weather or conditions and environment that you're like i can't i have to either harvest this plant and wash it or i have to cut this plant down because it's going to go south and we're down to cut plants out you know we i'm that's like normal that's farming this didn't work cut it out this is diseased cut it out you know, and like that's, you know, hunting too, like, you know, especially for what I can't have a plant that that like is going to be sickly and growing outdoors in Maine. It's going to get destroyed and I'm not, I'm not going to get anything out of it. And I think I have to, you know, hunt for like, I feel like what we can bring in is like super small compared to what I could, you know, hunt in an indoor where all I care for my indoor is turps. Literally, I'll grow the worst plants ever. I don't care. I'll grow Z 24 seven, you know, belts, anything that sucks, I'll still grow it. Cause it's really only for terps for indoor for me. It's not like a production. It's like, I have a four lighter. <laughs> so I just put whatever I really want to smoke in there and I don't care how it grows. And like outdoor, it's like, I can't waste my time cause I have one shot to produce for the year. So my window of selection is way smaller for the outdoor and that's my least favorite part of outdoor growing and also that we have one harvest so we've been trying to plan on what we're going to do about that and we're probably just going to get a small greenhouse going here shortly so that we can have limited but different flavors coming you know every five to seven weeks just keep things moving because it's it kind of sucks to pheno hunt something in the fall and not be able to fucking grow it until the spring. And it also allows stuff that you find early that no one else has to give them a bunch of time to go through them all and find stuff before you're really producing anything from it. So that, yeah, I, that's just, I guess me always kind of putting our menu up against my favorite indoor menus and just like, trying to learn from it they just can bring a whole new set of flavors really quick 
But yeah, I just love it all. I love indoor products. I love outdoor products. I love trying to get our outdoor products better than indoor products. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to do. And the running cost is like extremely minimal in comparison. So I feel like that's the best overall goal for a business is to produce a high product with the low running cost and do the work yourself. So you have the quality control. And and that's kind of what we just try to do here for now. Just try to learn and keep doing it ourselves. Yeah, like you said earlier, it was interesting to see you guys all uh, working, doing your own thing. But it definitely seems like uh, you have like a rhythm to it, and everybody has, you know, their own kind of roles, and everybody plays multiple roles. And it seems like you guys are making it happen. So it sounds like the greenhouse might be the next kind of evolution of the farm. Yeah, definitely. We have a really good good team, and to be honest, to be a caregiver, you need a team, whether you know it or not. I have my skill set, but I lack in a whole lot of areas, same as any other human being. And to, you know, you have to be a grower, you know, you have to be an, not an accountant, but you need to be a book bookkeeper. You need to, you know, run the back end of all these businesses. You know, if you own real estate, that's like a whole nother aspect to it. And, you know, banking is a mess. It's not easy to be a caregiver here in Maine. It's, it's, it's definitely something that you need a team for. And that's why like me and Matt, I feel like form a very good team where, where our skill sets are in different areas and we both trust each other to do our area very, very well. And I feel like that's why our team, you know, functions very, very well. And we never get into issues. I think it's harder when you're both really good at one thing. So we try to, you know, just delegate different tasks and just all go out there and just work as work as a unit here because I don't know how long people are going to last running a caregiver's license by themselves, completely by themselves. I know that you're they're the licensed grower, but you basically need a business partner very soon, if not now. In my opinion, I'm glad that it's a friend and not some random dude. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, shout out to Matt. He wasn't able to make it today, but he's basically another big part of Hidden Forest. You guys basically... Oh, yeah. 100%. We would be screwed without Matt. 50-50 with Matt on everything. Since since the start, we both spent our last $20 bill together a few times. And we all lived in my grandma's shed without a septic system for like years. <laughs> so uh, we're really good friends and family at this point. And everyone's kind of like sisters and brothers. Cool, man. Well, this feels like a good time for a smoke break. You don't? Hell yeah. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 54 with Hunter of Hidden Forest Farms and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including the crew at Heritage Hashko Mendocino, Kevin Uplifted Indina, Milwaukee J, Solventless AF, and Nick the Intern in Michigan, the Real Cannabis Chris, the Homie Big C, the Chile Relleno Burrito, Garland in DC, David of Rosin Evolution, Macromelts in SoCal, Turp Wizard, and Rezon Reserve in Michigan. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So let's talk about what people want. We've talked about vino hunting. We've talked about the different profiles that kind of come and go on the scene, whether it's competitive or not. But when we were hanging out, you were joking about how you'll have people tell you, 
that whatever was the best thing they've ever smoked, but then next time they want something new. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is kind of the theme for retail. And now it's obviously they need to reflect those sales. So the wholesales as well are kind of like, they just want something new all the time, which is understandable because of the demographic that's actually purchasing a a large amount of the retail hash. It makes sense. They have options all over the country and more flavors, the better, right? So like I do, I do get it, but I was like kind of touching on how when I would find something that I truly liked, like, you know, back in the day, someone actually had sour. I'm like, okay, I want all of this and only this. I'll take as many of these as you have, basically. And like that, those days are almost over. Like even for sour yeast, like, you know, in this day and age, it's almost over. People really just want like one of everything. And I think, that's tough for people with like one grow a year, right? So, you know, we run into a lot of people demanding mixes, you know, we want a new list of mixes we want. And like a month later, they're like, do you have a new list of mixes? And they know that I only have one grow, but they need to kind of reflect what people want. And then I'll make a new batch of mixes. It'll all sell out and, you know, so forth and so forth seems to kind of be how things are moving with certain people and kind of across the board. Mixes have been a cool way to satisfy that need, but it's also like a shit ton of work and not really guided by how the plant actually grows, you know? So it's definitely a whole nother thing. We're just trying to keep up with everything and what people want and people literally love the mixes. And I don't really like the mixes as much as the single cultivars. So I'm always like, Oh God, yeah, I guess I'll just like sit here and like chef up like a bunch of different potential mixes. And then you have to go through them and smoke them for a few days. And like, then I have run into just being like a big critic of them and being like, I just think these are better alone. It's tough, but we're always just trying to learn from it. And like, as far as sales goes, like you really just need to meet, the demands as long as they're in your parameter of price range if people are willing to support your company and give you the price that you feel like you should get then you definitely need to honor them and work with them you know if they need new you know mixes and flavors then we'll make new mixes and flavors so that's kind of how we've responded to that and how do you balance that with what you like i just try to take myself like i I do have myself as a standard because I've found that I'm more critical of my own work than other people for the most part. It seems the stuff that I've been like, I don't even necessarily think this is any good, have been favorites, you know, for people. So I try to take myself out of it to like, it's like one foot in, one foot out where I'm going to look at it and about how I feel, but I also need to respond to like what the sales have been more so than like, it doesn't really matter what I like at the end of the day. I could think this is better than that, but it really is just going to reflect what other people think, to be honest. So when you're curating like a menu for a business, that's like you are relying on the public to support you and consume your products. You definitely need to listen to them. And that's what we do. We compare our success 
with whatever strain as far as yield, you know, hash per square foot or hash per grow bed or whatever we're calculating. And then we look at the best sellers and we, the ones that are both are the ones we're going to definitely grow and continue to grow regardless of my own feelings about them, which is kind of hard because you want to reflect your own standard, you know, but you also need to supersede to the people's opinion. It's always a balance between, you know, what you think and the result, you know, and you just got to be real with the result because it doesn't really matter what you think at the end of the day. I mean, obviously it does when you're like growing for yourself or whatever, but realistically we rely on a lot of other people to do what, to do what we do. And we need to like, make sure we're doing good business and bringing people what they want. So over the last three years, for example, you said you built this stable that you have now, how many genetics do you think you've got rid of within those three years based on what you're saying? I think the most we've had at one time that we've been keeping was like 120 some different strains in our mom room. And we're down to like, I think like 40. And we grow about half of them, I'd say outside, maybe less than half of them outside. So we hold on a lot of stuff we don't even grow because we're genetic hoarders. Like we just, it takes a lot for us to kill a plant off, you know, they just, we've shifted and then been like oh we don't have that anymore and it's been like heartbreaking and been like wow like i've just learned that lesson a couple times so we don't really kill stuff even if we don't grow it like the straw nana i'm not going to grow but i would never kill that mom that's like amazing breeding stock and i might grow it again in, in like a year like who knows you know and a lot of these like clone only is that people are like oh i'm over it like gmo i got a mom like, I don't grow it. I haven't grown it ever outside or inside ever since I've got it. Actually, I've never grown it, but I have it. There's definitely potential. It's the, it's, it's an amazing plant, regardless of what anyone thinks, you know? So it's, a, it's something to have around. And pheno hunting is like, I kind of run through two or three phenos or something for like multiple seasons before I really pick. And we just keep things around just so that we can always have an option to grow it. I feel like that style has led us to kind of skim through these libraries and, and find the stuff that, that works for us like outside and have those ready every year for us. Like think of a good example, like uh, the banana papaya that was cloned selected by um, sensory flipper on Instagram. He's the homie Nick and he was giving all of his material to make a raw melts and he got it and washed it and was like, Oh my God, dude, this is insane. You know, this dumps and it's really awesome. Banana terps. And we tried that outside and it's one of our biggest uh, yielders for hash per square foot. And that was like a random runty growing, slow growing, hard to grow indoor plant. And like outside it, it was, it's like a breeze to grow. So that's a good example of like clones that we've kept around to grow a lot. The straight papaya cut is phenomenal outside in Maine. I think it comes out very different too, which is a cool thing. And it's done early and it yields both in biomass and in hash. So that's another really good one. But yeah, we just kind of have sifted through some clones. I've got, I've got, I've got a good, you know, 
25 strains or so going this season. We usually run around 20 to 30 strains, I think. And then at this point, what would you say if you had to say the ratio between things that you've found and things that you've taken in as clone? Oh, man, I've kept like a handful of things out of the thousands of seeds. So, and like, again, some of them, like I'll, I'll keep, but I don't know if I want to run them or anything yet. And so ones that we actually run, it's this past Fino hunt we just had was a really, really good one where we got like, it was kind of a shot in the dark because it was only like a pack or two max of a bunch of different stuff. And we found a lot in the Turp Fountain gear that was obviously winners, which was cool because usually it, we haven't really found something that's like just super obvious going to be some of the best shit out there. But that stuff has potential for sure. And um, the Six Star Selections gear from the Sour Lemon Drop, that had some really crazy stuff in it that we kept one Fino out that I'll be bringing to market this season. So we have like six new selections coming this season. Pretty big change up to the lineup. We have six of, or even shit. Yeah, we actually have seven seven new strains in the 12 hoops and five of our favorites from the past few seasons. So it'll be cool to bring in some new gear for people to try out. And also I think will help set us apart. And I think it's like something that we need to work on by trying to just get a lot of our own selections into our menu but it's hard because we're critical and a lot of the clones that we've gotten and collected have been like tested very well and they do amazing and it's it's like we're not gonna grow something not as good just because it's our selection and it's been years but we finally found a few things so i'm definitely excited to bring that out the guava punch it's called ilmatic now Kush Kirk bred that one. That's a really cool tropical, super greasy, melty strain. And it it's just a massive fucking plant and showed a lot of resistance to mold and mildew and freezes here. So it was cool to see that. That's a new one. Like crazy kind of uh, self-explanatory from the name, but like definitely some punch terps in there, but with like a pretty big twist and some of the most greasiest, meltiest, beautiful melt, which is not usually the case with the punch cut so it's cool to have like that aspect like bright tropical berry guava terps the 007 up and the sour lemon drop were our two finos that we got out of like a few different lemon strains so i'm excited to bring that because it's just we've been lacking with that we've had no lemon at all so those two coming in the red smoothie and the berry fizz so the terp fountain gear getting a shot and they're doing great so yeah, we're pumped for a lot of a lot of our new stuff for sure. And when you say, for example, with the turf fountain gear, that some of it were clear winners, and that that's not usually the case. You talked about characteristics earlier regarding you know hunting, and also you know microclimates like yours. What is a clear winner in your eyes? What are some of those characteristics? We're mainly hunting for turf profile hashers and resistance to fungal pathogens and just pathogens and pests and and we let the pheno hunt just go we didn't pull plants so there's plants that were like completely molded you know every single bud had you know botrytis spores on it 
clear to the eye and there was plants right next to it with zero mold. And overall, the Terp Fountain gear for being spongy did really, really well. And also just had by far the like loudest terps. And I'm just kind of getting into hunting berry terps, like grape terp stuff. So he, it's not really grape though. It's like a mixed berry, but it is like a warm berry pop, pop tart terp that I, that's kind of how he, I guess, describes it. And it's pretty on point if you ask me. And I, I love it. I think it was just like, so uh dense on the palate that just like your whole fucking mouth is just super coated with it and that's personally what i'm looking for when i'm like trying all the hash i want it to like linger and stain the palate and i'm a little more like leaning into forward terps versus like a complex terp not that i don't like the complexities but i do just like loudness it's kind of how I go about things personally. Like I want it to smell really strong and then taste just as strong basically. And I want it to be like a translation from the plant to the hash. So that's like what I'm looking for is like whatever can best translate the aromatherapy and the, the smells that I got as like a grower and hashing it into the jar. And I think certain strains do a really good job of that. And some don't like the Z does that amazingly. And that's why I'm a huge fan of it. A lot of different stuff does it, but you know, that's a good example. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for, but not everyone. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool. You just can like put your little spin on the stuff you'll bring in. So. And saying that you've tossed a ton of the genetics that you've gone through seeds, how common is that to see? a genetic that, you know, does have that, like, let's call it intensity and smell. And then also the other factors that that translates into water hash and then rosin. Uh, I feel like you can find it. I feel like a lot of it's luck and more so I actually, I don't want to say luck because it's almost like discrediting because it's like a huge difference in I guess effort and you know to just go from seed and go in the direction of finding something different only you know I have so much respect for growers that do that like you know it's risky it's ballsy but it's definitely what a lot of super committed people do because they know that the out like it's worth the risk to find something new that's different that can set them apart so I applaud people that like essentially only do that. And I think that they get rewarded eventually with finding some really cool shit. I try to do like a mix of the two, you know, we have a plant count that we need to stick to for our licensing. Me and the other licensed growers can grow 30 plants for patients and six plants for ourselves as far as our medical license I can't really risk one of those plants like, you know, that's that's my year right there. So I can't go from seed in my plant count. It's just not doable. It's not smart. It's too risky uh, for us to do that. So we have to do like, we do one full season pheno hunt where we do a lot of plants and we do them in like a greenhouse that has no controls. So it's covered from rain there's no fans or no heat or anything in there. So we just kind of let them rip and keep them small and then we'll resin dial them and find the ones we like. And to keep it really 
to just to keep the work down because it's in the middle of our harvest that we're doing all these pheno hunts. We just like reveg whatever we like. So I'm not even cloning. You know, it's gonna be hundreds and hundreds of clones to keep alive for weeks. So we just were like, usually there's not that much we keep. You know, so it's a it's like all right, we can take some clones off a flowering plant and reveg that you know whole plant itself, and we always get a clone back from it. It takes a little bit, but it's really easy. And then we also are now doing a bunch of indoor pheno hunting in super small like situations, like tents, like four by four tents. We're setting up a couple just so we can not be stagnant. It's like if there's a seed pack that's sitting there that I want to see what you know what's up, we should just be able to pop it. Like I, I want to be able to at all times run a bunch of different tents of seed because it's really easy, you know, to just have a bed down there and doesn't need to be perfect. You just need to see what the seeds can do. Uh, so um, we're trying to get into that to just like be able to do both. We're, we're not taking any losses from taking away from the plant count by losing plants that are either aren't good or can't grow in our climate and then still getting to uh, sift through large amounts of seed in small fashion where we can resin dial stuff that we like and not even I don't even harvest a lot of the rest of it you know it's really just small plants like two foot tall plants and I can go through everything and multiple times obviously with a lot of different people we just like bring more and more homies through just really try to get everyone's opinion and like can see the health of the plant and just uh try to make our selections the best we can for what we're going to do with it it's like never ending you know it's always just kind of going through seed and the more you do the more you can bring in new stuff and so that's kind of the like a little bit of a double-edged sword you know there's pros and cons to a lot of different styles so we're just kind of trying to do both at the same time and going back to what people want and like you brought up earlier also in the end this being a business is part of this never-ending cycle trying to balance all these things to where you're able to bring in these new flavors like you said for example bringing in lemon turps or bringing in berry turps and then having that complement your other terps and being able to make blends off those to satisfy the market is like all of this never ending cycle part of making that work. Yeah, definitely. You know, you have to respond to whatever comes at you. And that's like why it's another reason why I'm just grateful for the team that we have here because, you know, there's always something to react to and change and tweak in some element, whether it's in packaging or, you know, merch, sales, the financing behind these businesses is tricky. You know, there's so many different parts to it. So um, it's like always, there's always an opportunity to get better at something and, and to set yourself apart. And so we're all, that's how we look at it. The faster that we respond to whatever comes our way without much ego involved with just like moving on and changing things and not holding on to things, the better. And that I think that's tough to like shake your own ego, to be honest with growing because a lot of us have been, you know, we've dedicated our life. We've taken a lot of risks. Um, you know, we've done a lot of things on our own without much education offered to us and we do a lot of business without any you know real you know being able to get real loans or 
you know, we've, we've just been like kind of under the eight ball and I think it's tough because it's been a reflection of you and your passion. But when you turn it into like a business and our brand, it's way bigger than yourself. And a lot of these small personal growers that have like, you know, turned into a brand, it just turns into a whole nother beast where you need other people to help. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people are in Maine. Cause it's, it's, you know, like everyone knows, it's really not an easy thing to just be like, Oh, I have a team now, you know, I've learned and grown with my team for years and years and years. And we trust each other and it, that's not formed overnight. And like, it's not easy to start a team. And that's why I think it's really hard currently to be a caregiver in Maine. And we've seen a lot of, a lot of people dropping out of the program. I think it's a, always a good a good thing to just consider like what you need help with and get help. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, when we were hanging out, you were telling me about some of the companies that do well within the state and how they do have people that play certain roles and those roles are done well independently. And then it just makes kind of everything work, but it definitely sounds like you, you need multiple people or like a team. And like you said, that's not an easy thing to, really just whip up because a lot of it comes down to, to trust and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's easy enough to grow your own herb if you're compassionate and really like it a lot and want to do this, but that's not what being a caregiver is in Maine anymore. It's not just growing herb. It's running a full business and like it, it's kind of unfair how much you're required to do. And it's definitely not something that they're trying to make easy the licensing isn't for teams, you know what I mean? It's like, it's an individual grower who's responsible to do a bunch of stuff. So it's not like you get a team as a grower, you get workers if you want to have them signed up and pay them to work for you. But really where the team comes in is like, do you have an accountant like who you can, you know, work through things with, you know, do you have like someone involved with, the longevity of the business, like what's the business plan? Like, you know what I mean? And like me as a grower, like I lack that, you know, me and Matt each grow our own weed and run our own sole prop businesses. You know what I mean? But we're owners of the real estate together. And you know, there's a lot of different things that come up and it's a very, uh, it's a very involved lifestyle you know what i mean so we just try to uh roll with the punches and learn and and if we need a consultant to help with something we will reach out if we need someone else to help we'll reach out you know if you know a lot of people are like out there harvesting you know their crop by themselves you know what i mean sometimes it's like they can't afford employees and they're stuck. And like, that's where it's like a shame. And I think people need to come together and work together more. So just always try and keep things flowing. So you said something earlier along the lines of if we were going to grow, you had to do it now. And you guys aren't from Maine. So tell us what got you there. Like what was the motivation and where did you guys come from? I'm from the suburbs of Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes or so outside of Philadelphia. And Matt is from the central Jersey area. And we met 
because he went to college in my hometown. So we randomly met and became friends and we're friends for a long, long time before we did anything with, with this hidden forest company together. So uh, we kind of were just friends and floating around the same, the same area. I was able to, you know, I've been friends with Tucker from Mega Raw Melts outside of this whole thing that we do for a long time as well. We met at a music festival and bonded over, you know, cannabis. And I had family members that lived up in Maine. My grandparents lived here. So I was general, you know, I was pretty familiar with Maine, but I didn't know anyone there. So got to come up and visit Tucker and just see the lifestyle and, fell in love with it and it was the first time you know i was young so i was just like wow like i could make this my you know life and live a good life and be licensed to do it and not have to live this like underground you know secret wook life which i was like totally you know not trying to do that i was pretty sick of that whole direction i was going in and wanted to uh take my passions and do something real with it and and slowly developed the plan with Matt. And then we finally made moves in 2017 or something, I think, to get the property. And kind of, we didn't know it wasn't called Hidden Forest or anything, you know. So it all turned into something uh, kind of slowly. But we were just so excited to have our own property, you know, and, and kind of like embark on this journey. So basically we're just consumers that realize the products that we really wanted aren't attainable necessarily unless you grow it and just the passion for weed and then hash for both of us you know i won't get into it but we did a whole lot of hash stuff in pennsylvania as far as making hash goes so we were just like you know needed to get out of there and get into a safe space and kind of like take take our interests in a direction that can sustain us and start something real so why hash um i mean i was a huge herb fan still am smoke joints you know all the time i really love herb it's obviously the only reason why we have hash in the first place so and i'm i really identify as a cultivator and you know it doesn't that's just about the plan in general i really support all different avenues but me personally, when I tried hash for the first time, I was just like blown away with the experience. I think like the first hash I ever got was probably some like, not like a full melt product or anything, you know what I mean? And I still just was like, this is amazing. You know, a lot of, I think it was like OG and sour trim mix that my homie got from like, you know, California or some shit. And Back in the day at like, you know, random music festivals, you'd see cats with some hash and I would always get stoked and always buy some, you know. So I've always been a fan of hash. And then like live resin came out, right? I forget what year, but and then I remember seeing like separated live resin hash, you know, for the first time. This was pre-rosin. So I was just like, holy shit, man. And once there was that live representation of hash it was just like i'm hooked like this is like the best flavor you know in cannabis in my opinion so i was just really pumped and dove right into the whole you know bho thing 
and being like a connoisseur of herb, I would make my own pho all sketchily like a long long time ago so it started with just trying to control the starting material and learning how much that dictates the quality of the hash you know and just kind of slowly and super you know nothing big very small simple unsafe stupid things but was still a lot of fun and then you know was it 2000 13 or something or 12 rosin you know flower rosin came up and then all of a sudden quickly it was like oh we're pressing live bubble hash and you know obviously things have changed tremendously since those days and it hasn't it's been it's been really fast but that's been like my evolution with hash was just starting off with the flat as like a flower fan really a still like loving the traditional hash that i first tried and then kind of like getting really hooked with the live resin when when that when i first had like really good extract it was sfeog and i just was like this is incredible from that point forward i've been really involved in live extraction as much as i've been able to which is like the biggest that was like the biggest driving factor that we need to grow weed. It's like, okay, all the best stuff's coming off of live product. Like it's time to sink or swim here. And me and Matt were like, we need to go, we need to go up and like do this if we're going to do it. Luckily prop, you know, the property value here is skyrocketed since we started the farm. So we really lucked out because we didn't have much money to start the farm with. So we were able to, get a raw plot of land together and embark on this like whole kind of full spectrum plan of regenerating the old log property through cannabis cultivation. And then that shifted into for resin. And we've learned more and more with the regenerative movement with getting educated on different ways to help with the land management and everything is just kind of gone from there. That switch to resin from flower, what motivated that? So we saw people when during the diamond craze, when it was like diamonds everywhere, it was like the most popular thing. They were going for a lot of money. We saw people just literally harvest their whole field in like a week, freeze it, drop it off at an extract company, get, you know, 70% of it back sell it all like this you know and be done and i was just like holy shit like that's insane and by the time we had a chance to potentially do that by the next season it shifted into rosin like diamonds were not it crc fucked a lot of shit up and the price started to plummet you could still get a lot of good, you know, you, you could still get good money for like really good BHO. And there's still like people that were considered connoisseurs that like liked it a lot, but it was like, it was, you know, phasing out. So we just took a leap of faith and washed, like, I think we washed 75% of our harvest into milk. And obviously I've had some good friends, you know, show me that show the quality like how fire the melt pressed can be you know at that time so that's what we decided to do and uh we lucked out we were growing like chem d and sour d and like 
even in this crazy haze, uh, super silver sour chem haze, it's called lazy lightning. And like all of the, everything washed, everything came out a great color. We really liked everything and we sold out like in like a month. Like it was crazy. We didn't have any hash available, basically. It all just kind of was able to be sold. And the year before we were getting talked down pretty low for large, you know, flower options, which was kind of bumming us out because we felt like with the approach, we should be able to maintain a higher price. But like at the end of the day, like full term, like outdoor, regardless of if it was Korean natural farming or whatever, no one really cared. Like it was just like the wrong demographic that we didn't want to cater to a demographic that doesn't give a shit if it's organic or not considering we dedicated our whole life to make it organic. So we need, we felt like the switch really catered to people that were like, Oh, this is organic sun grown live rosin. And it's like good color. And, and like people were like, I like this as much as any of the indoor stuff. It was affordable. We just did really well with it and just went from, went from there. And like, it was pretty easy to keep doing it because it was all I wanted to consume essentially. So it was pretty a pretty obvious choice and you said that you identify yourself more as a cultivator how has then that change changed your process as not only as a cultivator but as a selector of resin especially considering that you have these particular environmental settings i think the biggest switch over is like the dedication that you put into the plant and like how you know is like nothing compared to trapping or like you know the lifestyle is like there's a big difference in how committed you are to the plant you know what i mean so i became like very in touch with the plant and my whole life was engulfed by growing cannabis and everything off of it hash the techniques of growing you know everything i was just obsessed with it all and became just way more connected to everything. So I think I identified with growing because of the lifestyle that it changed, like it changed my lifestyle for the better. And being in Pennsylvania and, you know, essentially being considered a criminal for smelling like weed was just too much, man. I was really passionate about it and I didn't want to be made to feel like I'm a piece of shit. You know, straight up, it's tough. It's It was not the right environment. At the time, I was, like, concerned with trying to have clean water and clean food and stuff like that. And just, like, being in a high-populated area, like, I didn't have access to actual clean drinking, you know, water that didn't have a bunch of chlorine in it. And, like, at, those things were really, really important to me at that time, and I needed a shift. So moving to Maine and, like, starting, like, a homestead farm and, uh, learning a bunch of new stuff that I know I didn't know anything about soil or anything about farming at all. There was no background really for me, and it was it's really fun, you know. I think that's why it was so fun and why we love it so much. And we're, you know, I think uh, I miss being in sales every once in a while because I do see it as pretty easy. Because if you can like identify the actually good products, which if you smoke hash, you can like, if you smoke, if you've gone enough places and smoked enough hash and got gotten out there, 
you just have a leg up in sales, in my opinion. And sometimes I'm always like, oh man, I want to go out and just buy like a quarter pound of all the like best shit and <laughs> sell it. And like, I could sell it all like this. And it's like, but then I'm like, no, 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 come back, come back to reality here. But, you know, I do think this, the lifestyle is just safer, better and more sustainable and just healthier. And then the second part of that question was like now switching over to growing for resin, how have you developed as a selector and what are some particular things about the resin that you're looking for within your microclimate? Um, so for resin, I'm looking for extractability and smell. So a lot of people know like the stringer test, obviously with your fingers, it's pretty, it's pretty easy. You just get resin on your hand and see what kind of consistency of resin it is. You can use like a jeweler loop and kind of get in there too and see what the shape of the resin head is. There's a whole, all different types of shapes that extract. And that's where the theories, I don't, I don't have any dialed theory. I've seen super tall stalks wash. Great. And I've seen strains that look like they're just marbles on there with like hardly any stock wash. So I'm not convinced I know exactly what the shape, like where the lines are drawn with the shape of the trichome, but I definitely can feel it on my hand at this point without even washing the plant. I've never had something not wash at all where it's like, oh, like 3% plus for me, we're good. That's just how I am. I know that that's more than I'd get for flower, 100% if I were to try to do the equivalent. So 3% plus, I'm like very grateful and happy with. Obviously, we have some that are 6 plus percent in our lineup, but some of my favorites aren't, are like 4%. Seems like a lot of my most favorite strains are like between like 35 to 4.5%. So I do, uh, I don't, I don't judge as, as long as it's good. And more importantly, like we were saying earlier, is it's 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 hash per hoop for me. You know, that's all I'm really worried about. But as far as selecting, yeah, just looking for greasy strains. I like. I'm not looking for stable resin um, at all. I'm looking for grease, like very volatile, greasy, strong smelling strains um, that are going to have really high rosin yields, and the 90U is going to be melt. And that's what at least the 90U is going to be melt if not the 70 even too. And like I've seen 70, 90 and 120 bag be straight water before. And that's obviously what I'm looking for being us being more melt oriented a little bit more, I'd say I, uh, as far as like our favorite, our personal favorite stuff, we obviously sell just a bunch of rosin, but we love melt. So I'm always looking for that. I just select based off of plant health, you know, that's got to be the, it kind of has to be as far as if I can grow it in my full-term field, that has to be number one is like, how long does it, is it a healthy plan for, can it finish all the way? Because there's stuff that doesn't finish all the way that I could tell is super terpy and either washed via resin dial or a test wash, you know? I'll keep and run inside and see how it comes out or give it to like my homies and be like, yo, run this shit. This is going to be super turpy. So a lot of different factors, I guess, but you know, it, it could be simplified to just how well it handles uh, mold and mildew for the most part. 
and washability slash turf profile. And when you talk about that three and a half percent to six and a half percent, what exactly does that entail resin wise? Uh, like, uh, there's a good array of different styles of resins for sure that we have. Like, the papaya cut is on the drier, stable side, where we're getting like 74%, 75% on rosin yields from the 70 through 149. And the 90U and 120U isolated or together is not a full melt. It's almost there. It's just definitely not, though. It's, there's no way around it. Um, I've been working to try to change the way we do some washing stuff to see if we can adjust with that. But in general, that's a very dry strain where you need to even press at like a little higher temperatures. So like I usually press at like 165 or like 170 ish. And sometimes I'll press at like 185, 190 for some of these more stable strains. Same as the straw Nana that was very stable and very dry it dumps like two it's like seven some percent um it's wild how much hash is on those plants but that's stable and then we have like the icicles and like the sandy beaches it's like like rosins itself it's wild like so so greasy even in a cold room sieving it can be challenging if the humidity is not super dialed it's like a mess like you have to work very quickly with it it's like 70 through 149 rosins, like 80, 85%, 87%. I like those strains better. That being said, just as far as the resin consistency, but the papaya was one of my favorite strains we grew. Um, so as far as flavor, like the resin consistency where, you know, of meltiness doesn't always necessarily like mean like it's the best rosin. So there's a lot to consider, obviously, in everything. But yeah, you know, I think we have a good array of different styles of resin, I'd say, as far as milk goes. And then when you talk about the percentage, what goes into that? Like what range? Is it the, the full spec when you say three and a half? Is it just that 70, 90, 120? Oh, got you. Yeah, overall, it's like this, the banana papaya we've gotten like 6.7% on before. And I think that was the 40 through 149 essentially everything and then we have a like a we like to have like a sellable rosin yield because we keep the 40u aside we do edible lines and stuff with that so we don't have like a 90u rosin that we sell it's like 70 through 149 occasionally we'll do a wash for melt so we have jars of you know a jar of like an isolated 90u but the rosin that we release, there's no juice taken out of it. <laughs> it's the 70 through 149. So that's kind of the style in which I guess we, we just keep it all like all rosin is just 70 through 149. And if you want melt, it's like limited and it's like a custom order and we might be able to do it. Maybe not. It all depends. And then I usually keep those too for some competitions like Smoking Jacket coming up and some other ones. But um, in the last Smoking Jacket, the 70 through 149 was way better, way wetter, and I thought had a fuller taste. So I don't really always uh, think of when like you're talking about rosin that like taking the 70 out of the equation makes it makes it better. I think it 
Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. So it's good to just kind of run everything and try them both. Yeah, like you said earlier about the melt, some of them, they'll produce it in the 70 as well as the 90 as well as the 120. So I guess it just depends on so many different things like the cultivar, the obviously growing techniques, the light source, all the stuff. So it's hard to say unless you kind of run through it yourself. Yeah, 100%, man. There's a lot to consider. It's kind of second nature, I guess, you know, but when you break it down, there's a whole lot. (laughs) Well, cool. You down for another smoke break? Yeah. Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where they've continued innovating functional glass art for over the last 20 years through the vision and creativity of artist JP Toro. JP has been exploring his passion for cannabis, glass, and function over the last two decades to be at a point where his designs are now taking dabbing to a whole new level for all of us. He's introduced us to the concept of the slurper through his desire and curiosity to explore a different airflow concept for quartz. He comes up with things that look awesome that are equally as awesome in function, like his jet cyclers, which come in a range of styles to exploring exciting colorways on a variety of their rigs and pipes, including a recent favorite of mine, the Crayon Yellow Jet Perk. So whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro, who stays at the forefront of innovation at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit about rosin consistencies. Seems like you guys have been doing a lot of jams lately. When did that start and where did the motivation to do that come from? I think the first time we did a jam was like 2019-ish. At least that's like the last photo I have of it. Kind of forget exactly when we started getting into it. But it was before I had my own hash. So it was like I was doing it with like Mega Raw Melts pie dough. And just like fucking around with it. I think it was like Sam in Colorado. Samwise Ganji on Insta. I think that's it. And then uh, that Diet Funk dude at the time too. We're kind of like releasing the tech and like. I just took a screenshot of their stories and like fucked around and it worked, you know, it was pretty, pretty easy. I mean, obviously it can also not work. And I've had a lot of like R and D where I've lost stuff to carts basically, but it's pretty cool. I think anytime you can like shift a consistency without degradation of anything, it's like worth fucking around with. So that's why I tried it. And then I was kind of surprised to find that I felt like the flavor was like more pronounced or more developed in some way, shape or form compared to the cold cure and the fresh press. So that was like a pretty cool finding. And then I just, you know, I didn't have my own material at the time. So it was like a fun thing and then it was done. And then didn't jump into doing that with my own material at all. When I did have my own material, we did cold cure. So a couple years or a few years later, you know, you see some people throughout the years posting some, you know, Cubans always had some like amazing looking jams. 
and a, you know, a few other people obviously out there as well. And then, uh, decided to kind of like refresh my memory. And I, uh, hit up the homie, Maddie melts from Maine, who's been really killing the jams as well. And he kind of like broke down like what he's looking at in the meltdown with high heat before taking it off the high heat, which is kind of what I was just curious, like, what are you seeing happen that's like take it off high heat now? So he kind of like snapped my memory back into place. And then I went from there and we did for the past, like I'd say year, we've been doing different jams. It's been great. The people like them a lot. So they've been selling really well Been getting a lot of like, we want more jam requests. So that's always cool. Like I was saying, some of them, it's like a developed flavor. So there's the difference between the cold cure and the jam. Some people think it's a stronger flavor in the jam. Some people prefer the cold the cold cure at the end of the day, I think. And then there's been some that are like clearly better as jam from what I've seen. So we've done it to like 20 some different cultivars, you know, pretty regularly now. And I just do a jar of jam and a jar of cold cure for each strain. And then we drop the menus so that people can just pick and choose. And uh, it's been fun, man. Yeah, I think it's like a, there's obvious, I think it looks better personally. That's how I think. Some people think in terms of, oh, ew, that looks like BHO. But like, I, there was like, they probably weren't smoking BHO back in the day. Or that was really good. You know, honestly, because I do miss that consistency, like the micro diamond with like a little turp layer on top. Like I love that consistency for dabbing. And I know some people like the cold here a lot better for like probably convenience factors and stuff like that. But I was never really into that aspect of it. I just wanted the most terpy tasting consistencies. And I found like that was always one of my favorites. So I'm biased and I love the jam consistency. I think it's way better than the cold cure, which in my opinion just goes bad. Like I know it, it, it stabilizes from fresh press, but I think there's more that we can do to make the products a lot more stable. And when you whip a shit ton of oxygen into something, it's definitely like going to go bad. The clock has started and you'll see some resin like spoil very quickly where it'll separate like immediately. And some of those are the better strains too, which sucks, but they'll separate and then you have to whip that back in. If you wait too long to do that, you're like whipping rancid, gone bad hash, in my opinion, back into things. And that's when we start to see things degrade and taste old. So I was very sick of that happening. Like, I feel like there's like more to improve past the cold cure consistency. So I was open to the jams and I still love them. You know, I don't think, I think there's a time and place for both consistencies. So it's not like one's going to ever replace the other. I don't think, but I think it's a good addition. And what about regarding like the effect? Do you feel like there's any difference when you move them over to being jams? Um, yeah, I've heard people say the effect is stronger. I'm not, I'm unsure because of the density differences between the two. And that's like, uh, that's actually one of the negatives I've heard from the consumers who, who like the jams and then are like, I'm going to get a cold cure this time because I smoked my two gram jar really fast. 
And like at first I was like, Jesus, just take smaller dabs, dude. It's denser. But like, that's not really always how things go. So the jars go faster. That's been the negative. The positive has been this taste and smells way better. And like, and like this never goes bad. And I've, I've had this for a month and it's just as good. So it's like, it seems like the positives outweigh the negatives. And then for people that are like, Hey, like I, I tried the jam and like, I honestly think I like the cold cure better. I'm like, dude, hundred percent got you on, on that. I'll, you know, I'll switch your jar out. I don't even care. Uh, uh, yeah, like, I don't know. I think it's just, just listen to people. You can try new stuff, but they're going to decide whether it's going to stick around or not, you know, at the end of the day. But so far, so, so good with the uh, jams. They've been getting better, you know, so. And since you said you ran it across so many cultivars at this point, are some better than others or pretty much do you think like if you want to make a jam out of a cultivar, you pretty much can as long as you have the right parameters? Yeah, this, I, I think with all the different resins and each strain having different melting points, you know, and all that, you're going to see a difference in how things jam and you need to respond to it with some sort of theory and just test the theory and then be like, oh, I'm on the right track. And like, that's all you can do with jams. There's no one out there who's like, Mr. I know exactly how to do it because every strain is different and like people's setups are different, you know? So some people have like a, some sort of like vacuum oven, which is going to be heating a lot, even a lot more even, you know, than like someone in like a toaster oven or something. And you can do them in both. But yeah, figuring out different strains, like an example is the straw nana, more stable resin takes longer to melt down or higher temperatures to melt down at the same temperatures as others. So you can like adjust by doing a higher temperature on the meltdown. And then a lot of times it takes longer to crash also. And then like, you know, you think something's done and you try it, you know, and then you're like, oh, this is like firm. This isn't like applesauce, crunchy, like crystallized, like juicy stuff. This is like still firm. And you're like, well, fuck, you know? So like you like that one needs to go for longer, you know? And then I've, I've overdone some stuff, you know, for sure. Not a lot, but I have a few. And then the other cool learning process was, We've been doing rosin jam pour-offs for our carts for some R&D and they've been so tasty. I think I can like identify like a point where the jam, like the terps in the jam are 100% there and intact. And I can get like both a jam and carts, you know, almost correcting the amount of terps because like some stuff is like 50% this like viscous terp layer. And like, no one really wants it to be like that <laughs> as far as the consistency goes when you're gramming it up and whatnot. So you can pour that off, you know, and have carts and then also have a jam with like a more appropriate amount of turp juice on it. So it's like, it just opens up to a bunch of different cool, fun stuff. And yeah, I'm interested in learning this reserve of Pravada tech and all these different techniques. You know, I'm really into all that. I love trying it. You know, it's it's been really cool that people who have developed these things have shared them, which is which is awesome. They definitely don't need to do that. So shout out to the Jam Tech pioneers. I think like Rosin Ryan is always uh, in that group, if not one of the big guys in that movement. I've never met him, but props to him and props to uh 
the whole Colorado crew that was kind of pushing things with that and Maddie Meltz and a few other people in Maine. So it's been fun to help try to develop it a little bit. Yeah, that's cool. And I think it's also kind of funny and almost ironic that, you know, you were really into live resin at some point. And then, you know, I feel like these jams, like you said earlier, people sometimes are like, oh, it looks like that. And so you you still like that look, but it's in yeah. kind of new solventless way of doing it. So it's kind of ironic. Yeah, I think there's a lot of consumers that never had to smoke BHO. So they didn't know that it was at one point like a head stash product as far as flavor goes. Like maybe, you know, there's cleaner ways to achieve that flavor and maybe even better flavors too. And that's why we do what we do now. And it's obviously changed a lot. But at the time, man, it was like trim hash, you know what I mean? Essentially like bubble hash, mainly made from trim or BHO. And if you had like, if it was coming just directly from a grower, like an indoor grower with a fire garden, dude, it was really good. You know, it's funny. Like a lot of people don't even, they've never even had good BHO. It's like, probably haven't been smoking hash prior to 2014 or 13 then, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I've been smoking hash. I'm not, I'm like 33. I'm not some OG or been here forever or done that, you know, been there, done that. But I definitely smoked real sour and definitely had fire BHO. That was like what awoken me to hash in the first place. So yeah, like it's crazy how demonized BHO is. Like I don't, consume it ever anymore and i get why a lot of people don't but i think just to just for clarification people need to know at one point it really was good and like some of the best flavors in hash form were coming out of bho it's like just it's it's kind of funny to look back and see that yeah it is kind of funny and you brought this up a couple times so i have to ask but do you consider pretty much any kind of cannabis oil extraction hash at this point, whether it's BHO or whether it's solventless or whether it's whatever? Uh, I think, uh, I think, you know, you can break down the term and have your own opinion, I guess. Like, I don't really care. I think it's easier for me to just call it hash. It's concentrated fucking weed. And, you know, technically, I guess hash is going to be like a bubble hash. And live resin is going to be you know bho from live material and then like live rosin you know there's all these terms and everything but i've smoked them all and they're all hash to me man like i definitely feel like the live term was the big difference that was like when things shifted in hash i was like i mean we've seen really big shifts it's pretty cool you know we saw rosin come out of nowhere you know, we've seen products go from cured to live material as a standard. We've seen the crash and death and destruction of BHO, which is like essentially worthless now, which is crazy to think. You know, just being out in Cali to get that dog, I was like, yo, there's literally fucking BHO for $2 a gram, man. This is fucking crazy. Like, it's worthless, man. Um, it's gone. So like we've seen big shifts. We know more shifts are going to come. And I think like I used to be very close-minded and like specific and like I'm just a lot more open-minded to like what the future can bring. 
um, especially with like laws changing, demographics changing, like, you know, if this shit goes federally legal and like there's permits for people in Maine to be just at one point shipping, like, you know, like we're going to see these things, you know, these, all these things are going to happen. And you're going to look back to like 2012 when there wasn't rosin, you're like, holy shit, you know, in 15 years, maybe from that point, we're going to be at like a whole different level. So I just try to keep my mind open to everything and uh, keep our heads down and just try to just grow the best weed we can. Cool. Well, man, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I'll start winding it down. I know you've told me it's important for you, the idea of being single source. Why is that? Um, I think single source is the epitome of passion because it's the drive to take control of every element of what you're producing. And I think it's a little harder. So it's not necessarily like single source or bust, but as an extraction company owner myself, I know what it's like to have 20 different clients material to pick from. And you essentially can select out of a full state you know what I mean, that you're operating in for entries for competitions. It's definitely a leg up. And from what I've seen, they can basically just go through so many different growers throughout the year, be keeping their favorite stuff, you know what I mean? And have a huge lineup of incredible hash, you know, and single source guys are going to have what they grew. That's it. So I think when you see a single source guy make it and can beat labs in competitions, it's like, it says something. It says a lot to me. I'm also obviously biased. I'm a single source, you know, person myself. But like the reason why we became single source is to survive because we can't just pay $60,000 to some extract company uh, in processing fees a year, like versus saving it. That $60,000 is more money than it is to build your own lab. So as like when you break down the numbers, there's just like no reason to not be single source. Like I know that some people are too busy and they're already killing it. And they're like, nah, I don't have time for that. And that's too involved. And like, I feel that keep on dropping your stuff off, you know? And like those labs are great and they help people. But like from a business standpoint, we weren't willing to just like, continuously give away 60k when $45,000 is a built lab and that's the direction that we went. So I'm biased. I appreciate it a lot. Um I think to be skilled at a high enough level at all those different things usually results in just like a very passionate person that's truly about the plant and less opportunity for like the wrong people to take credit. And that's like something that I personally have like a big distaste for is labs that win stuff and represent growers without inviting the grower or even mentioning the grower. Um, That being said, there's plenty of labs that are the epitome of grateful and like put on the grower. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And that's why I support labs. But there's a lot of flip side to it, you know, like 
if you are an extractor of a, and like own a lab and you're out entering other people's shit, like you should have that grower with you. Like you should, and even if they're like, no, I don't think I, you should, you should bring them. <laughs> like they're busy growing, but like they're the reason why you have an entry and like anyone could invest in a lab and get a consultant to show them how to set up a lab and pay people 20 bucks an hour to run a lab. Not saying that's the reality of every lab, but like it's, it's, it's not the entity that should take the credit um, because cultivation is way less profitable than running an like, extraction business or a resale business. Like that's where all the hardships are. And like the farmer never gets the credit or the money. It definitely deserves the credit at least. That's just how I see it. So I just love to see self-made farmers, you know, making a, making a name for themselves all by themselves and able to like have a brand across the country, like Cuban grower and his wife, you know what I mean? Like these small individuals that have made a huge brand for themselves, you know, through either sharing tech or just having a phenomenal product or just being a single source wizard where they're just really on, on all gears firing and uh, bringing a quality product to the market. So I just have the utmost respect for those people. And that's why like I took, my single source journey, like trying to like show respect and like be part of that crew and group of people that are going to like put everything in front of or put nothing in front of the resin and the plan. So I think I just resonate with the whole lifestyle single source. Interestingly enough, though, during one of the breaks, you were telling me in Maine, there is still a big sense of like collaboration or a big sense of people being willing to work with each other. And so even if you are a processor, there are people uh, who are cultivators who are willing to work with a variety of people just to almost as a means of marketing, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. That's where I think, uh, you know, I think eventually these companies will, you know, if they're going to, uh, specialize in hash they'll make their own lab but they don't all specialize in hash so why why do it like you know if it's only a small chunk of what you do um you know then like whatever like the high road guys they are you know flower growers at heart and grow some of the better smoking flower in the state and they have been for a while and Rob, the, one of the owners is, you know, running the business side of things well, and they have really good growers and, you know, really good grow manager and grower himself, Eric, and like they do amazing work. Um, flowers are flowers are gig, but when they enter hash, they do very, very well. So they're starting to do some more hash, but, you know, for someone like, like them, it's like, you don't need to jump into a lab quite, you know, yet, you know, you start to wash like all your rooms or even just start an outdoor grow, it's worth having a lab straight up. Like it should be part of the, every design for an outdoor grow. Um, even if it's like not nice setup, like you could just wait till it's cold, you know, but you should definitely just be trying to watch your own stuff because it's honestly the only way to survive as like a grower trying to make it. Um, and you're, and, and you're hashing everything it's like a rough place to be where you're like, you don't know the lab. So you're just trusting the lab. You don't know if your stuff washes. So like they're telling you if it washes or not, um, if there's not a good solid bond there, like it's easy for growers to be in a hard place and like blame labs somewhat understandably. So, because if there's not good communication, it can just be a mess. 
obviously we know there's always so much drama with <laughs> with that whole extraction thing. And that's where a lot of things can go south. And I think like uh, because you have to be careful who you're working with and work with the right people and know what your strains already do beforehand, in my opinion, you should know yourself before you're dropping rooms off. Um, so you kind of have an idea of what to expect. Like it's definitely a, it's definitely a good idea just to move towards doing a free self financially and just for the longevity. So on that note, if you had a big aspiration in the next three years for Hidden Forest Farms, what would it be? Well, we've been putting all of our efforts and any profits back into the growth spaces this whole time. And we are at a point where we don't need to cultivate more. Uh, we have what we need. So the infrastructure to the growth are basically kind of done. We're moving towards like the bigger picture of like single source, which is vertical integration. So we're moving towards having a dispensary where we can essentially emulate the microbrewery or even more so the like, you know, winery style format where there's a you know you can purchase the wine slash cannabis you could taste the wine slash cannabis eventually when those when we get there and here in maine and then you can do the farm tour where you get to show them you know the farm and how you farm you know and us being in a tourist driven area in an oyster town there's a big opportunity for that and more than that our town wants those kind of things and in their ordinances, they were saying just like Oxbow Brewery, which is less than a quarter mile away from us. And in these regions that we're in, they want to build businesses like that. So it seems like that's what we're going to push towards is having a tasting room slash dispensary, potential cafe, bakery like thing there. We have we'll have our farm stand there. So we'll have all of our veggies and flowers and honey and products like that. And then we'll also start like opening up uh, like agro tourism visits. So that's where we're moving towards besides just keep keeping everything going, you know, with what we do now and the greenhouse potential in the future. So a lot of different things, but that's kind of how we see things progressing here. So we just need to do what we need to do and jump through the hoops we need to jump through to make sure we're permanent and uh, can continue to be licensed and uh, build towards it. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good aspiration. In all this that you guys have gone through in the last seven years and developing not only the space, uh, the land, the brand, the business, how important has data been? Because you mentioned it a few times and how that's kind of an important part for you guys of keeping track of how you're moving forward. I'd probably say it's the most important thing there is that we that we do um besides working hard and like you know being dedicated all that stuff that's that's never been a problem for our team so data collection is like the only way you're going to know where you're at you know it's like super important like there's nothing more important like if you don't know how much money it costs you to produce a good you're screwed you know like and if you can't calculate that which it's not like something you can just immediately be accurate with. You need to like work on living costs, which are extremely hard to calculate and change. Um, you need to really kind of every single cent spent on this farm has been written down. Every single one, gas money, anything. 
anything at all, you know, that's been spent here has been written down. So we have a running cost for each year, you know, how much we've produced, how much of that we've sold, how much of that is in our inventory. You know, we have a sales log. So all of our medical sales, like it's all like a state sales log. So it's like pretty simple. It's like the, the this is the care this is the medical license name and and we have like a whole list of sales. It's so we're able to always know like our profitability where we need to minimize costs. We are able to analyze all those things where we want to put money into, you know what I mean? How we want to structure our business. Maine is is an interesting place, you know? It's like kind of like the old days compared to a lot of states. There's no track and trace, you know what I mean? Like there's not a crap ton of oversight. It's like pretty chill when you look across the country at what we've seen. We're lucky to even have a medical program, obviously. You see what's happened. So I'm like very grateful for the program. I hope it stays intact. And that's what main caregivers have been coming together, especially the main cannabis coalition, to make sure that they can't, you know, these like out-of-state interest groups that have companies up here can't ch- change the laws around and lobby lobby stuff around at the last second. And uh, we've been really lucky to have a good group of committed people to to see those things happening and stop them. And we've been able to kick track and trace out each time they've tried to bring it in. Um, we want to be treated fairly like any other business, not like some pharmaceutical freaking company. You know, it's been cool to see us be able to preserve it. Um, and in order to continue to preserve it, there's a lot of work because there's an adult use program emerging and becoming more and more, there's more and more people coming into it and they're slowly making the medical side of things more and more regulated. So people are dropping out of the caregivers group or the caregivers uh, licenses and, and just doing a personal grow because there's good laws for that. You know, it's like, it's a decent amount of plants that you can grow without having to have a sales tax idea or run a business. And when you're a caregiver, you're, you're in the game, you know, you got to report sales tax, you know, we have to do that monthly, you know, it's definitely intense. Um, and, and you know, you're playing ball. So we're seeing the caregivers numbers drop currently, and we're seeing adult use numbers kind of rise as people have like a foot in both programs right now. So that if one is like poof gone, like they are able to continue. So it's like a, it's rough waters to navigate. So we're trying to work on at least getting a permit for it. Because if for some reason we weren't able to, then we, it's all, this whole thing's done. So, you know, it's stressful. You know, there's a lot in the world of cannabis that's extremely hard to navigate. And uh, we're just trying to like stay above water like everyone else. And I think that's like, the biggest dictator of like how everything will go is like the political movement behind the adult use and medical and how it's going to all pan out. So we'll see. Hopefully it doesn't just like cease to exist. And we watch a bunch of people not be able to get into the adult use program like California and like not be able to get licensed and 
then you see, you know, more and more police presence with illegal grows. You know, I, I would hate to see that. I'd love to just see both programs go because it doesn't seem like the adult use is, is going to go anywhere. They're definitely going to have adult use licensing. And I think it would be really smart of the state to keep both programs going. But usually, like we've seen, it doesn't happen. So, Yeah, it definitely seems to happen in other states for sure. And, you know, eventually one gets phased out. But it's also interesting with you guys and the reciprocal laws with all these states around you, how that plays into that, which is one of the things that really I think I understood more on this second trip to Maine. Or like, you know, you have states like New York and just all these states right around you that these are potential patients as well. Yeah, the way I see it, everything's great as it is. I think the banking issue is huge. Like that's a big issue. 280E, which is like a tax bill or a clause or something that's, you know, it's a federally illegal, you know, it's a federally illegal industry. So you don't have banking, you know, and you don't have you know, write off really potentials in most things, you know, as a sole prop or like a care, a, a caregiver business. And, uh, that's hard. That was, that's how people run businesses and they take up, they take a lot of that away from you. And that's why it's dwindling. And like, that's why they're, they're like, sweet. We're watching all of these people quit, you know, essentially. And then it's going to be that much easier for them to just roll out don't use and shut down the medical because it's not making enough money for the state when it was making so much money for the state, you know what I mean? Like billions of dollars a year, you know? So it would suck to see the state swayed by the wrong people, uh, always the wrong people, you know, to change the laws and like force people into the adult use because the running costs and the taxes are going to be higher and everything's going to be harder. And it's unfortunately all just going to fall onto the consumer. And what happens is the market sucks and everyone hates it. And then it's ruined. And that's why the medical industry is great because there's a low barrier to entry and it keeps the competition high and keeps it alive and well. And that, and like, that's the smartest thing to do. Like, it's kind of crazy that states have been, I mean, obviously they're just swayed by money and they need it. So they just like go off of that. But there's just like a lot of benefits to keeping the medical program for the state. And the state could be loaning all these people money. They could have, the state could have all these credit unions ready to go. We'll take your money. You know, here's all these extra fees because this is kind of sketchy at the end of the day for us and get, so much interest on everyone's money and allow us to actually run businesses normally, but they don't. And like, you know, other people will start banks and do it. And that's what's happening. There's credit unions like all over the place popping up like, yep, I'll do it. I'll do it. And the state is just sitting there not getting any of the money. And like, I don't know, we'll see how things pan out, but there's a lot that's going to change soon. I bet. Yeah. It's always in a state of flux, man. We'll see. Like you said, hopefully, Things pan out for the better. Yeah, for sure. If you had to pick the three top flavors you've smoked in the last two months that are not yours, what would they be? Two months, huh? Oh, man. The straw guava from Sleeps on Couch. Jake is such a good, humble dude. And 
is very quiet about how dedicated and skilled he is as a grower and extractor and has some of the best papaya-leaning-esque terps in any shape or form, um, in my opinion. I think it's an incredible product. I'd say I've been really happy with paper mill cannabis. Like, Like how I was saying, I have a lot of admiration for people that go from seed like crazy. The dude is a savage. If you follow him and look at his stories, it's like one room, 20 some flavors all from seed. You're just like, holy shit, dude. Like, and you know, it's good to see him placing up high. I know he's going to win one of these soon. Yeah. I'd say those would probably be my two. I would say the orange berry fizz, his entry was really cool. I like that one a lot. I'd say those two. And if I had to pick another one that I was really into would be the high road Skittles that they just dropped. It's the real, it's the real Z. Yeah. It's, you know, if you've had the Z grown well in like an indoor dialed room with organics, you know, already. Um, but I don't think a lot of people do actually know all the way, like the full capabilities of Skittles when it's done right. It's just the epitome of, of staining flavor and crazy power, especially when it's not taken super early. I know people like to do that with Z because of the hash flavor potential. Um, and color to help with the color because it's not the lightest color rosin but when it's grown like all the way like they grew it for flour so they washed some of it and it, it's just so medicating and i find myself like smoking myself into like a nap because i i, I take like three dabs like way too fast because it just tastes so good if you had to name the three people you see as the most influential hash makers for you, who would they be? Uh, I would say, um, you know, Mecharal Melts, he sparked this whole thing for me. He was a good friend of mine and has been doing this for a while. He's definitely like the Don of the game over here, probably, you know, and uh, continues to, to dominate in the space as well. So big props to him trying to think as far as other hash makers oh yeah big shout out to kush curb he's been in just consistently some of the healthiest gardens you see you know and like me being really into the cultivation aspect of things i resonate with how he does it and why he does it um and i think some of his plants are just so damn healthy it's unbelievable got out to his place a few years back having a been in like you know a lot of touch with him recently we chat here and there i haven't seen him in a little but uh big shout out to him and his farm that's always been like really healthy comparison for me you know to be like wow this guy is further along where i want to be with running and grazing animals and integrating uh the alpaca manure into his system like i thought that was extremely advanced keeping it simple and raw and just real and transparent. So shout out to him. Shout out to Amanda too. She's an incredible gardener. If I had one other person, I don't know this guy's character at all or know him personally. I've never met him, but Matt rise has, you know, like I watched his YouTube video and started making hash like, you know, I've, you know, I've Cuban growers been like a huge point of comparison with just like the quality of extract consistencies he can reach. 
he's also like super militant <laughs> getting to meet him like not like personally honestly yet really but just like seeing him around at the ego clash i like the vibe like he's he's very very passionate which is awesome and he's here for the scene and it's just good to see someone like uh who is like protective of what he thinks is special so shout out to him hope to meet him at some point um but yeah i looked like i was young as fuck looking at his uh sift you know like one day you know one day i'm gonna have hash that looks like that smells like that and they've all been pretty healthy people to look up to i think throughout the years oh i appreciate you sharing Last question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast that hasn't been on, who would it be? Mm. I definitely am going to favor Maine here. I gotta, I've got to think for a quick second, but I think Maine deserves more spotlight. They don't go around the country enough. They don't get out. But, oh man. You know, I would say Paper Mill Cannabis, man. He's got a good story. He's been around. He's grown like weed in Colorado before and like Rhode Island and he's mad humble and he'll come through and like set up someone's room exactly like his and be like, Oh yeah, dude, like send it. Like he's just a good dude. And I think just like how I was saying, the way he grows is badass. I think he'd have a lot of cool stories and expertise in certain areas. Like he drips biobiz through cocoa. So he get he he's like kind of in the middle of the two realms where he's optimizing with like some of the best organic nutrients in the game, you know, like they've been around forever, dude. Some of the product off people just running biobiz line to a T is phenomenal. So I think uh that would be a good person to come on. He could talk about some fun topics. Cool man, yeah. We'll see if we can make it happen. Well, Hunter, again, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. I'll see you, I guess, in a few weeks. And if you want to follow them, again, on Instagram, it's at hiddenforest underscore farms. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? Just, we really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on here and talk a little bit. And um, just wanted to say thanks to you for always, you know, opening up the opportunity for brands to get a little more info out to people. And I think it goes a long way. So appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise, dude. I appreciate you taking the time. And now I know you got to get going. So I appreciate you hanging out with us. Anybody who kept up with us this long, we appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.